Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I am joined by Stephanie Carvin over Zoom. And today, Stephanie, it's part two of all the court cases. <laughs> you know, uh, we're calling this the Great Cases Zoom podcast series for Intrepid, which is again something I've wanted to do for so long. Which is we keep mentioning all these cases, but not really how they layer on top of each other. Ideally, what our listeners will get out of this, and me too, I should be honest, like I'm learning here, is a better understanding of how we got to where we are with our current national security case law. Yeah, so Stephanie, this is the second in our series. The last time uh, we focused on what we call procedural fairness or due process or fundamental justice cases that arose under Section 7 in the non-criminal context. And so the focus there was largely on security certificate cases under the immigration law. And so cases like Sharkawi and Harkat. This time around, we're still focusing on cases that were derived under Section 7 of the Charter. So for people who were following along, there are now two primers on how to understand Section 7 of the charter that have been posted, the video primers, which I'll include the link for in the show notes for this podcast. The This focus today is really going to be on criminal law. And so due process, or more correctly, fundamental justice standards under criminal law, of which one is the right to full answer and defense. And an important, if not key component of that is a right to disclosure. And so, so this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is our old friend, Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act. We'll get there. But before we do that, let's tee up the, the basic rules on disclosure in a criminal context. And the way to tee that up really is to go back to the early 1990s, only a few years really of charter jurisprudence by that point, and the famous case, some would say infamous case of Stinchcomb. So uh, Stephanie, in the in our last session, I, I noted that in talking about Charkawi and Harcutt and the like, I think it's important to recognize that those cases were decided in the immediate aftermath of the Arar Commission of Inquiry. So recall that Mr. Arar was removed by the United States. Ultimately, he was imprisoned in Syria. The United States had received essentially a data dump from the RCMP that suggested Mr. Arar was affiliated with terrorism the Commission of Inquiry that looked at the conduct of the RCMP and other government agencies concluded that was uh, unfounded speculation and was quite earnest in its con condemnation of the government. And along the way, there were concerns about a disclosure and concerns about overclaiming on national security grounds in the inquiry and subsequently in the release of the inquiry's report. All that was taking place at the same time as the security certificate cases were percolating up to the Supreme Court. And I think that cultural moment informed how the Supreme Court addressed the security certificate issues, and especially the question of disclosure. So too in the Stinchcomb context, which was early 1990s, it emerged in the immediate aftermath of most famously the Donald Marshall Commission of Inquiry. Donald Marshall had been prosecuted and convicted of a murder he never committed served a considerable period of time in jail. And the Commission of Inquiry in the late 1980s concluded that amongst the many flaws in that prosecution was a failure on the part of the prosecutor to disclose information that tended to undermine the credibility of some witnesses. There were contradictory statements that had never been disclosed to Marshall or his defense counsel. And in fact, there is an invocation of that Commission of Inquiry right in Stinchcomb itself. So that's an important context. You have uh, circumstances where the failure to disclose had led to a serious 
misfeasance of justice. And in consequence, the Supreme Court, when it for the first time really addressed whether under Section 7 of the Charter there was a constitutional obligation on the Crown, and the Crown, as we learn in Stinchcombe, is really the police and the prosecutors, whether they had an obligation to disclose material to the defense, it concluded that they, yes, did as a constitutional matter. And in fact, it was a vast obligation. It was not just limited to information in the Crown's possession that was inculpatory, that is information that tended to prove that the individual was guilty, not just information that was exculpatory, that is tending to show that the defendant was not guilty. In fact, it was information that was relevant, a much broader range of information. And in fact, the Supreme Court said, you're supposed to disclose everything that's not clearly irrelevant. And so that's a vast array of information. The aperture of disclosure is considerable under Stinchcomb. And that's important because the Stinchcomb standard is broader than would be the equivalent standard, say, in criminal justice systems elsewhere, the United Kingdom or the United States. Our system is more demanding on the Crown in terms of what they're supposed to disclose. I'm glad you brought that up because that was my first question. It definitely seems like that's a pretty broad standard. When I actually, you know, again, to the listeners, I do recommend you watch the videos. I learned quite a bit from them in my Intrepid podcast, you law school degree. But yeah, in the standard of of the US and the UK, it's much more broad, just simply because it's you're basically you're going to have to hand over your entire file would be relevant. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think there's some caution that's required there, right? So the Supreme Court, and it was fairly clear about this, Justice Sabinka's decision in, in Stinchcomb, The Supreme Court presumed that if the Crown, that is, again, prosecutors and police, have information about the matter or about people uh, tied to that matter, it's for the purpose of the criminal investigation and then subsequently the prosecution. They're not in the business of collecting information just on a whim. And so almost certainly, at least the presumption was, almost certainly if the information is in their possession, it's by definition likely to be relevant. And so uh, what that means in practice is that, yeah, a lot of that file may be disclosed under a relevant standard, but it's still a standard. So the standard is relevance. It is not everything, right? So to say that Stinchcomb requires the disclosure of everything in the possession of the Crown overstates what is already a broad concept. If I may, Craig, if you're a, pro- if you're a prosecutor here, you're not going to want to take that risk. You're going to want to try and disclose as much as possible because if they, if you get that standard wrong and you say it is a standard, but let's be honest, it, it does seem to be a little vague. You can correct me on that. But if you're, if you're a prosecutor, presumably you're going to be like, well, geez, I can hand over everything because if I don't, I'm going to be nailed on this Stinchcomb thing. Right. And so I think that's true as well. The culturally there, and I've heard this said, I don't have direct experience of this, but culturally, there is a propensity to assume that it's everything, that Stinchcomb requires the disclosure of everything. But the reason I'm making this distinction, Stephanie, and it really relates to our old friend intelligence to evidence, the reason I'm making this distinction is to suggest that the Stinchcomb requirement obliges the coughing up of the full file without consideration of the standard of relevance, that it means everything, is an overstatement. And there are circumstances where there may be material in the possession of the Crown And this certainly becomes an issue when we get to the so-called third parties, that is the non-police, non-prosecutor government agencies. Uh, There may be circumstances where what's the possession of those agencies simply is beyond the relevant standard. And there is no obligation in those circumstances to disclose that information. And so 
if you're culturally inclined to disclose everything, the trouble is that when you get to a point where, yes, but everything means coughing up something that A, is not relevant, and B, there'd be some public interest reason not to disclose it, then you may end up over-disclosing and raising conundrums of the sort that uh, at least are feared in the context of intelligence evidence. Right. So, and I just want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Intrepid Podcast takes no responsibility for anyone who is playing the intelligence to evidence drinking game during this episode. Right. So, so that's the first point, that relevance is broad, but it's not all-embracing. The second point is that the Stinchcomb standard did not negate privileges in the law of evidence or other statutory bars on disclosure, although I, I, I tend to prefer to have the conversation about privileges. And so an example of an important privilege recognized in law for a very long time is so-called informer privilege. And informer privilege is really about protecting the identity of police informants. And there, of course, the concern is that if one reveals the identity of a police informant, that that person's imperiled, that their, their own life, liberty, security, the person might be jeopardized because their identity is now revealed and potentially hostile actors may take some sort of uh, punitive action against them. So information that identifies the person or could tend to identify the person is protected by informer privilege. And that is a very robust privilege in the sense that it can only be pierced. It can only be overcome where what's known as the innocence at stake exception applies. And that means that the information is so important to the defendant because it answers the question of guilt. And so a well-recognized privilege Another privilege, and we're going to get to this later in the podcast, it's embedded in statute, although it has a, an earlier common law imprimatur, is the national security privilege. And it's found now in Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act. And so Stinchcomb says, disclose everything that's relevant. But if you conclude as the government that information may need to be protected for national security confidentiality reasons, you have a process under Section 38 that you will follow, uh, and we'll talk about that more, that allows you to preserve that information from disclosure to the defense. Now, there's a cost to that in the sense that if you preserve it from disclosure, you can't turn around thereafter in the criminal trial and try to use the evidence against the accused because that would amount to an unfair trial in the sense that you're uh, now protecting information from disclosure, but trying to use it on its merits and exclude the defense from having access to that information, that would inherently be unfair and, and unsustainable as a Charter Section 7 matter. So this is what you said in our last podcast. So if you're going to invoke this national security issue, or like if you, we disclose this, it's going to harm us, you, you, that's a shield, but you can't then use it as a sword Correct. to then prosecute someone with information that they can't see, right? Right. There are certain administrative proceedings like security certificates where you can protect information under the specific statutory provisions that pertain to them in the Immigration Act. In this case, you can protect the information and you can use the information in a what Leah West and I call a closed material proceedings, where you're allowed to actually use the material on its merits. But that is not the system under Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act, nor is there any way that I can conceive of where you could have such a closed material proceeding in a criminal matter. I just cannot imagine that that could, would ever be found constitutional. So, Stephanie, is it worth talking about the rules that apply then beyond the Crown to other government agencies? Uh, obviously, because this is something that we've talked about time and time again, which is what happens when you have, say, a national security case, CSIS is following someone around, 
they believe that they're involved in some kind of threat to the security of Canada. They then inform the RCMP that, that let's say, um, Bob, Bob, can we go back to Bob from Mordor? Let's use Bob. Um, but so we find out that Bob from Mordor is up to something. CSIS has been following him around. They're going to hand over a letter to the RCMP basically saying, hey, we believe that Bob from Mordor is involved in threats to the security of Canada. You may want to check this out. And then the RCMP will probably write back and say, a little more, a little help, <laughs> okay. a little bit of guidance. And then there's this kind of formal process by which CSIS has to carefully hand over evidence to the RCMP. I think maybe half the podcast episodes we've done have been about why this goes very, very badly. And uh, a lot of cases have in fact fallen on this because Bob from Mordor, when he's being prosecuted, has every incentive to then challenge and see all of the evidence against him and say, I believe that the RCMP investigation was informed by information that CSIS has on me, that information has not been disclosed. And therefore I'm going to force this into a separate section 38 trial where it will be decided by a judge whether or not I should be able to see this. And then the criminal trial takes another two to three years, but that's like, I, I'm just now ranting. So yes, in part, right. Okay. So what's in the police possession? Again, the presumption is it's in the police possession because it's material relevant to the investigation. Uh, it, along the way in the, say an anti-terrorism case, it may well be that the police are running a parallel investigation and the service is running a parallel investigation. And the scenario you painted is to what extent can the information that is collected by the service then be thrown over the fence to the RCMP? So the concern here is that the information you throw over the fence is now in police possession and is subject to the Stinchcomb disclosure obligation. Everything that's relevant has to come out, assuming we get to the point where there's an actual prosecution and therefore disclosure matters. The result is that the information sharing between the service and the RCMP is carefully choreographed uh, with that disclosure risk taken into account in a process known as One Vision 2.0. Now, again, I want to emphasize that the Stinchcomb disclosure is not everything. It's everything that is not clearly irrelevant. But presumably, if the service is providing information to the RCMP investigation, it's almost certain that it's going to be relevant because why else would it be provided? The, the related issue is, well, there's a whole bunch of other things that may be going on at the service in the services investigation that's never thrown over the fence to the RCMP. So is that service information itself subject to disclosure, assuming that the RCMP investigation culminates in a criminal trial, and now you've got to defend it, who's demanding disclosure? The answer is for government entities that are not the crown, so not police, not prosecutors, they do have disclosure obligations, but they're not the same disclosure obligations. They're not Stinchcomb. So first point, prosecutors do have an obligation to reach out to other government departments to determine whether their holdings include information that's relevant. But beyond that, if subsequently, say, the defense wants to determine whether CSIS has in its holdings information that is important for the trial, the defense can't demand that as an automatic matter. And the service doesn't have to cough it up. Instead, there's what's known as the O'Connor test. So this was a separate Supreme Court decision. It's subsequently been developed in, in the jurisprudence, but basically this is a system that applies for non-Crown government actors and other third parties. And it's got two prongs. The first is that there's an obligation on the defense 
to persuade the trial judge that the information in question is likely relevant. And that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, right? Because they haven't seen the information. And so they've got to get over that hurdle. Now, it's not supposed to be an insurmountable hurdle, but it is nevertheless a hurdle. And once they're over that hurdle, then the third party is obliged to provide the information to the trial judge. And the trial judge then decides whether the information will then go to the defense. And the reason for the second step, this second step was really about allowing the trial judge to protect other interests, especially privacy interests, because O'Connor really arose in the context where we were dealing with sensitive therapeutic and medical records. And so there was a strong privacy interest on the part of the third party in terms of disclosure. And so it may well be that if there's this privacy interest, this robust privacy interest, the judge may redact or otherwise summarize the information prior to disclosure. But in the absence of those sorts of considerations, frankly, when the judge decides, yep, I've looked at it, it's relevant, there's not these countervailing privacy interests, really, at that point, it gets coughed up to the defense. It, it, it should be provided to the defense unless at that point, and this was the scenario you were describing, at that point, the government decides, well, yes, but we're still going to resist and we're now going to invoke the national security privilege, the confidentiality rules in Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act, at which point you move to this collateral challenge process in federal court, which we'll talk about in a moment. So you can see that with the O'Connor rule, there's these sort of extra procedural steps before you get to disclosure. But at the end of the day, frankly, if the information uh, is relevant, uh, it, chances are it, the, the, the court is going to oblige its uh, disclosure, at which point you've got to contest it under a privilege. So Craig, so then this brings us to the Section 38 process. Yeah, right. So Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act. So what Section 38 does effectively is put in place a process where a federal court judge, so right away, let's just situate this. You've got a criminal trial taking place and our criminal trials are taking place. Well, let's say it's taking place in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, say, which here's uh, the serious uh, criminal trials in Ontario. The Canada Evidence Act Section 38 process says, ah, but when it comes to deciding whether the national security confidentiality privilege applies, that's a decision made by the federal court. And so now you've invested a second court in this collateral issue as to whether there's going to be disclosure of this information. So right in a way, we've now bifurcated the court system between a trial court and a federal court. And so a federal court judge, and there's a handful of these, they're the so-called designated judges. They're designated to hear these national security cases by the Chief Justice of the Federal Court. A designated judge of the Federal Court will adjudicate whether this information can be protected under Section 38. And really, in a case called Ribbick, the Federal Court of Appeal articulated a three-stage approach. So first, the Federal Court judge has to decide whether the information for which this confidentiality is being claimed is relevant. Because if it's not relevant, then it, it doesn't have to be disclosed anyway, so there's no need to go any further. Second, the federal court judge decides whether it's injurious to national security, national defense, or international relations. So would disclosure be injurious to these interests? So national defense, national security, or international relations. And while the federal court of appeal emphasized that there should be some deference to claims of injury by the executive branch, and so the court isn't necessarily well positioned to second guess these assertions by the executive branch, it is abundantly clear to me, at least, that the federal court judges are not simply going to unquestioningly accept 
bald assertions. There has to be some effort on the part of the executive branch to demonstrate injury. And if there is injury, nevertheless, there's still the prospect of disclosure on a balancing basis. So the last prong of the test, the third prong, the federal court decides whether weighing the injury to national security, national defense, or international relations against some other interest, there should still nevertheless be disclosure of some sort. And so in the context of a criminal proceeding, the obvious countervailing interest against the national security one is the right to a fair trial, the right to full answer in defense. And so those uh, issues are put in the balance and the court decides disclosure or no disclosure or possibly disclosure, but with redactions. And so in Ribic itself, which was a fascinating case. Uh, yeah, this Ribic- sounds, you made me do some homework. Listeners, I want you to know I'm doing homework for this. Uh, but this is a really interesting case. And it seems like I thought it was maybe a war crimes trial, but you're telling me that this technically falls as a terrorism trial. Yeah, this is one of these constant debates. It was an extraterritorial kidnapping case. And so this was in the context of the Bosnian conflict in 1995. And people may recall that several of the UN peacekeepers, including a Canadian, were held hostage uh, during some of the airstrikes in 1995. And one of the hostage takers was a Canadian who later was found in Germany. He was extradited to Canada and he was prosecuted under the provision in the criminal code that allows for extraterritorial prosecutions of uh, kidnapping. And in fact, if you unpack the definition of terrorism offenses in the criminal code, this is one of the offenses that fall within the ambit of the terrorism offense. And so he was prosecuted. His first trial ended up being a mistrial for reasons that are relevant to the conversation we're having now. Why? Because the national defense didn't want to provide two individuals witness A and witness B, that's what they're called, witness A and witness B, didn't want to provide them for open cross-examination and testimony in the trial itself. And so there was an effort to use the Canada Evidence Act to limit the participation of these two national defense witnesses, as well as some other information. And that process was percolating along in the federal court. It went up to appeal at the federal court of appeal. And that was the decision, the, the Ribic decision we just described. But meanwhile, the trial court said, this is taking too long and declared a mistrial. And so the original effort to prosecute Mr. Ribic falls apart. A few years later thereafter, there was a resuscitated effort to prosecute. And that was about 2005. That one was successful. And it went also then to the Ontario Court of Appeal. And the Ontario Court of Appeal said that notwithstanding that there were strictures under the Canada Evidence Act on the participation of witness A and witness B and other limitations on the information provided. Nevertheless, given the nature of those strictures and efforts to develop workarounds, we conclude that the fair trial interests of Mr. Ribic were still satisfied. And so that was 2008, which brought to an end this process, which as you can see, was quite protracted. But the the sort of the takeaway is with a bifurcated court process, you can have fairly attenuated proceedings. And certainly that was also the case in the Kawaja case, which was Canada's first real terrorism trial, if you will, in the sense that it was a terrorism prosecution brought under the post 9-11 terrorism crimes in the criminal code. Uh, But this uh, bifurcated system can lead to uh, delays. And that actually became a point of contention in the Toronto 18 uh, trials. 
And so listeners will be familiar with the Toronto 18 plots that was foiled in the mid 2000s in Toronto. And then there were a number of prosecutions stemming from it. And one of those prosecutions, uh, again, there was a question as to whether information would be protected under the Canada Evidence Act. The trial judge in that case, which became known as Ahmed, the trial judge in that case concluded, well, the fact that there's this bifurcated system in which some federal court judge over in Ottawa is going to decide whether this information is going to be disclosed in the trial itself, uh, rather than me making that decision, that's unconstitutional. That impairs my role as a superior court judge. And I think that's unconstitutional. That issue went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, the bifurcated court system is fine. It's unwieldy and perhaps not the most elegant system, but it's constitutionally sound. It may not be the wisest system, but wisdom is not the indicia of constitutionality. And so it's fine. And yes, there may have to be workarounds in the future in the relationship between the federal court and the trial court. Because at the end of the day, and the Supreme Court emphasized this, if the federal court says, don't disclose, I accept that there's national security interests in play and that those national security interests outweigh the fair trial interests, even though there are fair trial interests, the trial judge then needs to decide whether the case can proceed or not. The trial court is not going to allow a proceedings in which the fair trial right is impaired. And so if the information is withheld on national security grounds and the trial court concludes, hey, be that as it may, there's no longer the prospect of a fair trial, then the trial court is in a position under a provision right in the Canada Evidence Act and also as a matter of constitutional remedies to stop that trial, to stay the proceedings. So in other words, they may agree with CSIS or the RCMP or the Crown that providing this information would actually be injurious to national security and say, yes, we, we, this should be withheld. But then the actual judge where the trial is taking place and say, well, this is no longer possible for a fair trial to take place. And therefore, we have to actually stop the trial. Precisely. So even if even when the government wins, it can lose. Yes, exactly. So that's why it's risky to use the Canada Evidence Act, especially in a criminal proceeding. Now, the, the challenge in the Supreme Court did talk about this in the Ahmed case is the challenge is the, the trial judge is not necessarily going to know much about what it was that drove the federal court's decision. The federal court will issue a redacted judgment, but the trial court's not necessarily in a position to know what information was withheld that is in fact important for the criminal trial, the withholding of which makes that criminal trial unfair. They're not going to have the details. So they're left to decide whether there can be a fair trial or not, not knowing the specifics of the information whose disclosure has been withheld by the federal court, which is just this really awkward situation. So the Supreme Court suggested there might have to be uh, an amicus or a special advocate or a person who can shuttle back and forth between the two courts in order to make this system work. Now, as best I know, that's never happened to date, but the Supreme Court suggested this might be a prospect. So it's a bit messy. Can I just suggest that if there is an amicus, that they should have to dress up in the actual... Yeah, right. Okay, so the constant owl, the owl, right, because that would make it easy to do the shuttle diplomacy, right? Right, Um, I'm just saying. uh, I have ideas. So so the last point, Stephanie, is, okay, the last prospect is that let's assume that the federal court says, yeah, look, government, uh, either I believe that this is injurious, but nevertheless, the the fair trial right outweighs the injury, and I'm going to order this disclosed. 
That's one possibility. Or the federal court says, I don't believe your injury claims, and so I'm ordering this disclosed. And let's assume the government doesn't like that outcome. Well, obviously, it can appeal. It can appeal from the federal court, lower court, to the federal court of appeal, and from there with leave to the Supreme Court. Alternatively, or uh, perhaps it's exhausted that appeal, there's no more appeals left, the minister, the attorney general, can pull the trigger on what's known as an attorney general certificate. And so an attorney general certificate basically overrides the federal court's disclosure order and stamps essentially that information as certified. And for 10 years, that information is non-disclosable. Now, again, that's risky because now you've got a federal court judge who said, I want this disclosed because I think it has to be disclosed to meet a fair trial standard. And the attorney general turned around and said, no, no, it's not being disclosed. For the trial judge now to say, oh, well, I'm going to proceed with the trial, that's very unlikely, right? So the, the risk is that in using an attorney general certificate to confront and override a federal court judge's conclusion that the fair trial interest demands disclosure, that uh, effectively is playing chicken in your criminal trial because now the trial judge is left with a finding by the federal court whose details may not know that a fair trial requires disclosure. And nevertheless, there's not going to be disclosure. So again, that's very high risk to use an attorney general certificate in a criminal proceeding. Can I just ask one last question before we move on? Yep. So what's really interesting to me is that we're talking about this under section seven of the charter and not section 11, which seems to be more the legal rights to be tried within a reasonable time, to informed without unreasonable delay of the specific offense, to be presumed innocent, to pre- why, why is this under Section 7 and not Section 11? Because none of the other legal rights, in fact, none of the legal rights expressly talk about disclosure, right? And so Section 7 is almost a bucket of what we would consider fairly fundamental procedural guarantees that are otherwise not enumerated or usually not enumerated in other provisions in the Charter. And so you will look in vain in the Charter of Rights for any language, specific language, on disclosure rights or a right to full answer and defense. Section seven is a, a bucket that includes uh, many of the foundational legal principles that have been part of the common law tradition for a long time, but which over time the Supreme Court has concluded are so fundamental, in this case to the criminal justice system, that they deserve constitutional protection. And so the vessel for that has been section seven. Thank you. What's really interesting in that these cases that the uh, Canada Evidence Act, although we have the Cinchcombe rule, which has created this a little bit of a mess for national security. And we, we've talked a bit about this on the podcast before. But in these two cases that actually the regime itself has been found to be constitutional and legal, um, which, which is interesting uh, to read, because often when, when I read these cases, it's usually uh, the, the Supreme Court finding the government was wrong. What's interesting to me is, is just how the decisions on criminal law, which is a little bit different from national security law, even if national security prosecutions are a kind of criminal law, like it's, it's not a perfect fit always. And I, I think that's always interesting how something that seems to be very important in a kind of more straightforward criminal context then can really mess up the, the whole national security side of things. And then this gets back into the whole intelligence to evidence issue. And a lot of this seems to be convoluted, but also very fixable if we could actually get our heads around this problem. Yeah, I, I agree, right? So I guess there are a couple observations. You're right that 
criminal law, because it's such a fertile area of, of dispute and jurisprudence, for, criminal law tends to be very developed in the constitutional space. And so you have a lot of constitutional case law that's derived from criminal proceedings, and you're left to extrapolate from those criminal law proceedings as to how they may then apply in non-criminal contexts, and so national security amongst others. And so that can be a challenge because the analog isn't exact. The, the other issue is that sometimes there's some myths that build up around some of these legal standards. And so again, I, I you know, emphasize this, that the, the Stinchcomb standard is not everything. It is everything that's not clearly irrelevant. Well, there are going to be circumstances uh, when you're talking about intelligence to evidence where what's in an intelligence file uh, clearly is irrelevant to the matter that's been charged on the criminal side, right? So relevance is determined by what's charged by the police, by the possible defenses, by the trial strategy uh, that the defense might take, and, and by considerations about how you might challenge the credibility, for instance, of the prosecution's evidence. But it may well be that some CSIS files got a lot of other information that's entirely extraneous to anything relating to the criminal proceeding, uh, at least as charged. And so relevance is still a meaningful demarcation point or aperture for determining what has to be disclosed. And so, I mean, that's the first thing. It's not everything, it's, it's relevance. The second thing is that while I think a lot of intelligence evidence can probably be managed on the on the front end, on the investigative end, by anticipating how disclosure would work were this converted into a criminal proceeding and managing your affairs accordingly, there is still the back-end protection of the Candidate Evidence Act. And, and while there's some skepticism on the public record as to how well that works, and as I've suggested, it can be protracted and the like, it is still a very powerful tool for excluding information. Now, again, it's risky in the sense that if the information is excluded and the federal court concludes that the information is excluded and may generate fair trial interests um, and the trial judge comes to a similar conclusion, you may end up with your prosecution cratering. So it has to be a managed process. I think it would be regrettable if the solution to intelligence evidence was viewed as the Canada Evidence Act. It's a stopgap. It's a sort of an emergency break on the back end rather than a, a way to manage disclosure risk on the front end. And so I, I agree. I think, I think it is a manageable issue. It's just a question of gelling a culture on the police side that's about prosecutions and a culture on the intelligence side that is very much not about prosecution and aligning them so that they uh, can accommodate the the different interests in play. And both Leah West and I have written articles in the past about various means in which these issues can be not perfectly reconciled, but to a greater degree reconciled. And this is certainly something that the Senate has said that they want to look at intelligence evidences amongst the things on the Senate agenda to look at. Uh, so Intelligence evidence remains a thorny issue. Certainly, we've talked about it at length on the podcast, and and yet it seems to be not insurmountable. And that's a position I've taken over the years in my writing. And I'm still of the view that there's a lot that can be done without some massive overhaul legislatively that tries to roll back Stinchcomb, which is frankly a non-starter, because the only way to do that is to use Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, which is, is simply not going to happen. Politically, well, it would be a nuclear bomb. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just, it is interesting how in a criminal trial where you 
do really want all the evidence out there just because you do want to avoid those miscarriages of justice and national security. You have the potential for national injury if, if some of this information comes out and, but we still use the same standard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. And I would agree with you that I would rather we erred on the side of, of providing uh, defense as, as much evidence as they need to, to defend themselves. But it's, I, I'm just happy that we're going to continue the intelligence evidence drinking game. It's brought, I know it's popular amongst our listeners. So thanks for that, Craig. And what will we be looking at next time? Well, I think what's left for section seven is to talk about the substantive side of section seven. And so we'll look at a, an array of cases. I don't know that we'll be able to draw links between them, but an array of cases and the national security side that touch on the substance of fundamental justice, as opposed to the procedural standards, which we've been talking about thus far. Section seven of the charter. The party doesn't end. Well, yes, but the podcast does. Thanks very much, everyone. Talk to you <laughs> next time.